1 Samuel 30, it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken the women captives and all that was therein. They, they didn't kill anyone or slew, slew anyone, neither great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. And David and his men came to the city and was burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captives. And David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept till they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because of the soul of the people was grieved every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray you bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought hither the ephod to David, and David inquired at the Lord. Let me stop there and say, remember last week, David had inquired before, but last week when deciding what to do, he did not inquire of the Lord. This is a reminder the writer is giving us a clue that this really is an evidence that David had failed to pray before. So we'll keep reading. David inquired of the Lord, verse 8, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop and overtake them? And he answered, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So David went, he and his 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where, there were left, uh, where they that were left behind stayed. And David pursued, he and his 400 men, for 200 had to stay behind because they were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread that he ate and drink. And they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came back to him for he had eaten no bread or had any water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and, and where are you from? And, David, and he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because... Three days ago, I fell sick. And we made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast, which belongs to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Can you bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not deliver me, or not either kill me nor deliver me to the hands of my master, and I will bring you to this company. And when he had brought him down, behold, there were spread abroad upon the earth, these are the Amalekites, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the hands, land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them except 400 young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all of the Malachites he carried away, and he rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil or anything that they had taken to them, David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and herds which they had driven before those other cattle and said, this is David's spoil. Let's pray. Our Father, it is important that we take a moment now and reflect 
carefully upon these words. This story has such meaning. It is so powerful because it, it gives us an indication of how we should respond when we are in grief. To believe you, to trust you, even when there is suffering all around us, even when we, as the text says, we weep with no more power to weep, when we have no more tears that we can shed. Even then, Lord, may we trust you to guide us to where we should go. Give us, Lord, the grace to trust in your wisdom. There are people here who carry heavy burdens. Maybe we don't even know all of the burdens that they have, but they carry heavy burdens. And Lord God, I pray right now that in your Holy Spirit's strength, that he would, indwelling them as believers, lift their spirits, cause them to reflect upon these words and take wise choices to follow you, to trust in you, even though they grieve. I pray, Holy Spirit, do your work that we cannot fully understand or comprehend. Do your work in our hearts right now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every summer over in Brevard at the Wilds, they, uh, they have a, usually one night where the speaker tries to focus on, on ministry encouraging particularly young men to consider uh, giving their lives to serve God in vocational ministry. And, and that kind of emotion that comes usually with younger men, they contemplating such a commitment uh, can be pretty powerful. It's pretty fun to watch uh, if you see some, something like that where someone is saying, yes, Lord, I'll go and serve you with my life. Imagine feeling the leading of God so powerfully in your life that you give up all earthly ambition, you know, making money and living a middle class, upper middle class lifestyle, that you'll take the gospel rather to the darkest, most difficult places on the earth, that you willingly give up all the creature comforts that modern life provides in order to serve God with your life. Now, if you did that, wouldn't you kind of expect God to reward that kind of commitment? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want him to? I'm going to give up everything to serve God. Don't you think he'll reward that kind of offer? So what happens when he doesn't? What happens when instead of seemingly receiving God's blessing, your experience seems more like you've got this curse over your head, or it's like Charles Schultz had with uh, one of his characters, just a, a cloud of dirt following him everywhere he went. You, you remember, some of you are old enough, pig pen in Peanuts comics. You just have this seeming curse, this cloud that hangs over you. And you begin to identify with people like Job, who was a righteous man, but lost his family and his fortune and his health and his good name. What happens when God's people who are serving him experience a failed ministry or a failed marriage 
or family problems, when they go through physical infirmities. You tend to think in times like this, okay, I'm doing all of this for God, and this is what I get back. Why isn't he blessing me? And this must have been the feeling that early American missionary Adoniram Judson had. Judson was not the first missionary to leave the Americas, what is now the Americas, and go to a foreign place to preach the gospel. Actually, that distinction is reserved for an emancipated slave who took the gospel to Jamaica, incidentally. But he was one of the first missionaries to leave his family in New England and go to Burma with his wife, Nancy. The Judsons arrived in Burma, actually in India first, in 1812, the year that Britain went to war with America after the Revolutionary War. His target was Burma. Burma is in the east of, of India. It's, it's actually not in India. It's east of India. It's what today we call Myanmar. It's between Bangladesh on the west and Laos and Thailand on the east. And life in Myanmar, in Burma, is especially difficult back then. Besides all, all of the difficulties of living life as a foreigner in a country like that, there was, of course, all the diseases that they faced. Missionary work has always been difficult. It was difficult in the time of Paul, and it's still difficult today, and it reminds me that we should pray for our missionaries. But think about the context. He arrives in India in 1812, a little later in, in Burma, and by 1824, that's 12 years. For, for some of us, 12 years doesn't seem like much. It's 12 years after first landing in India, he's in jail. He's imprisoned because he's white. He looked British, and Britain was at war with everybody, I guess, back then. They were at war with the Burmese, too. And his being an American made no difference at all. He was thrown into their prison, the prison they called Let Mayun, that the foreigners, like Judson, called the death prison. He was imprisoned there with no hope of survival, but he did survive. And though he stayed there a whole year, he was pulled out of the death prison only to be placed in a worse confinement. He was taken into a and put in a cage that had been a place where they had housed an adult lion. The cage wasn't tall enough for him to stand up in. It wasn't wide enough for him to lay down in. And he lived there for six months. And the only food he had was what his wife could come and beg off of locals to feed him. And there he is in that cage in 1825, and he's given his life to God. And this is what he has to show for it. Well, in November of 1825, about 18 months after he was arrested, he was taken out of prison, and he was taken to the headquarters of the Burmese army so he could help negotiate a peace treaty between the Burmese and the British. And while that did afford him a little bit of luxury, he wasn't in jail any longer. His life with his family was falling apart. His wife, Nancy, died. In fact, while he was negotiating the peace treaty with the British and the Burmese, his wife dies, and she had been dead a month when he receives the letter that she had passed away. 
All he's left is his little daughter Maria. His son Roger had died earlier, many years earlier. And little Maria is 27 months old and she dies. His ministry is destroyed. His life's in shambles. His wife's gone. His children are gone. He has nothing to speak of. And so he goes out into the jungle. He builds a little hut that he calls the hermitage. It's a tiger-infested jungle. You've heard of the Burmese tiger? It's a tiger-infested jungle. The natives didn't go there. He didn't care about life anymore. He dug a grave under a tree, and he sat down by the grave, and he said, God, just strike me dead and roll me into the grave. And that was how he felt. Judson had given God everything, his lifestyle, his earthly ambitions, his wife, his children, his own safety, and his ministry, and God took it all away from him, all of it. And just like a little small ship in the middle of the ocean facing a storm, he had wave upon wave of grief wash over him. Now, I doubt any of us will experience grief like that. But regardless, whatever suffering you are experiencing, can I tell you that what Judson experienced and the reason I use him as an example is because it doesn't just happen to people in the Bible. It happens to people like us. Life is filled with grief. We live in a world of sin and life is filled with grief. And expectations are often, they go unmet in marriage, in career, in family, in ministry, they go unmet. And just like Judson, the, the person in our story, in our text, King David, not yet king, David has to learn a lesson. And it's the one we have to learn whenever we grieve, which is, how do you respond to it? How will you respond to your grief? When all of the intense pangs of suffering have died down and all you feel is the hot boil of grief, how then will you respond? Number one, you must choose how you will respond to grief because grief is the result of sin in life. You don't have a choice. Better to choose now than later. You have to choose how you will respond to grief. It says here in our text, David and his men, if you go back into chapter 29, they've been out doing their little raiding parties. They came back to their hometown, their, their base of Ziklag, and the Amalekites had invaded from the south, or invaded the south and had taken Ziklag and burned it with fire. All the women and children taken captives, wives and sons and daughters, and it says here in verse 4, the people with David and David himself, they lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. They had no more tears to shed. And when I look at a story like this, naturally the question people ask when going through this kind of thing is, okay, God, why did you let me go through this? Why did you burn down my village? Why did you let my wife and children be taken captive? And the answer is always the same, my friends. The answer to suffering is that there is sin in this world. 
It may not be something that you can comprehend emotionally. I'm sure you can comprehend that rationally. It's a pretty simple answer. But it's not one that someone's grieving can comprehend emotionally right away. The immediate context proves this to be the case. Both David and Saul had sinned. Ziklag was the destruction of David's own failure. It was the result of his failure to pray. Remember how all of this came about? David was being chased by Saul. He said, I don't know where to go. Instead of praying, he goes down to the Philistines. He makes nights with Achish, Achish, the king of Gath, where Goliath was from, who he himself had killed. He ends up getting a city, Ziklag, uh, that was out in the country, kind of on the borders. And in order to prove his loyalty to Achish, he goes off and he's raiding different uh, little villages around that area, one of which were filled with Amalekites. David actually had raided those villages. In fact, when David raided those villages, he burned it with fire and he killed all the women and children. And I think some of what actually is happening here is the result of his failure to pray and his failure to lead because he was following his own wisdom. But the destruction also reminds me of the failure of Saul. Remember back in 1 Samuel 15, he had been told to destroy Amalek. He was told to just completely annihilate that tribe. It was an old Canaanite tribe that had turned uh, against God. They They were actually guilty of some of the worst kinds of wickedness And they had actually tried to hurt Israel when they came out of Egypt. And God said, I remember the sins of Amalek. Go and wipe them out from the earth. And Saul took the common, easy approach of attacking some of their larger villages and taking the king captive and some of the spoil, the animals, for himself. So instead of obeying God's command, Saul left them alive. In the immediate context, we see David and Saul's failure, sin, brings death. Sin brings suffering. Then in the broader context, it involves the failures of nations. It reminds me of the failure of Israel. Remember what Israel was told when they entered in the promised land? They were supposed to conquer it. And they did. Half conquer it. They they conquered the confederacy of the ten kings. Uh, They conquered the kings of the north and the kings of the south. They conquered the Hittites. They so thoroughly conquered the Hittites that modern scholars until about 100 years ago didn't even believe there was a tribe named the Hittites. They so thoroughly conquered them. But they didn't conquer all the people of the land. And the national problems in the land stemmed from Israel's unwillingness to fully conquer the land. It was disobedience to the command of God that he gave through Moses. And I think finally it highlights the fact that wherever you go in life, there are always Amalekites. We live in a world of Amalekites. People who don't recognize God in heaven, they don't recognize God's word. They couldn't care less about how they live in response to him. All they think about is what they can have for themselves in the moment today. These are the kinds of people who destroyed Ziklag, deniers of Jehovah. And anytime you have people like this, In your life, there's always going to be sin and there'll always be grief because of sin. And I think this does answer the why question. We live in a sin-cursed world. So, you have choices. Two choices. How you respond to the impact of sin. It says here in verse 6, David 
was greatly distressed because the people spoke about stoning him. Because the soul of the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and daughters. But notice the end of verse 6. What does it say about David? What did he do? He encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Let me tell you something, friends. You can blame other people for your grief. You can admit, I live in a strength-cursed world, and this is why I'm in grief. It's always others. David and his men were troubled. They felt the emotional toll of this incredible loss. This is why David was distressed. This is why the people were grieved. They had lost their sons and daughters. They would lost their wives. And they were sorrowing because of the loss of their families and the loss of their stuff. To the Amalekites, their homes had been burned. The women and children, they're thinking, may suffer abuse at the hands of the Amalekites and likely they would be sold as slaves. And this stress led the men to say, our leader <laughs> shouldn't be our leader anymore. They thought about stoning David, picking up rocks and actually chucking them at his head. We need to get rid of our leader and get a new leader. They're bitter against David's leadership and blaming him for his loss, for their loss. Can I tell you something, friends? You see this all the time in life. People have to have someone to blame. I read a story yesterday. In Fox News, I was just blown away by this. There was a, a young man at a dealership. A guy took his car into a dealership to get the oil changed. You, you, most of you do that. I mean, I don't. I have an electric car. But for all of you, you know, you take your car into the dealership, you get the oil changed, and, and uh, uh, you turn your keys over. You go sit in the nice waiting room, right? You get yourself a soda pop or something or a coffee and sit there and and watch uh, afternoon television that you never watch at home. Uh, and uh, you're sitting while you're sitting there waiting for your car to be fixed. And and the guy did that. And he's sitting there, and, and he didn't know. But the 19-year-old young man who took his car back didn't know how to drive stick shift. And after they changed the oil in his car, he had been told you you have to start the car in order to be able to to get the car to see if the oil was leaking. So he opened the door. And he put his foot in, and he thought he was putting, pushing down the brake. He was pushing down the clutch. And he started the car. It was in first gear. And then, of course, he let his foot off the brake, which was really the clutch. And it lurched forward, and it crushed the other worker to death in the bay of the dealership. Can you imagine how horrible this is? I feel so sorry for this young man who didn't know how to drive stick shift. And the story is interesting, not because of that. I mean, that happens. That's awful. But because the family of the man who was killed is suing, not the dealership, not the 19-year-old or his family. They're suing the man who brought the car to the dealership. Because they're saying that he lent his car to the dealership as if giving your keys to anybody you would. to so say, hey, take my car, lent his and they're suing him for $15 million. And I thought to myself, we have to have someone to blame. I mean, I do feel sorry. Don't you feel sorry for the family of this man? Through no fault of his own, he's standing in the, he's working there and he's killed and the family's grieving, but they have to have someone to blame and that's the world we live in. And you can choose to go down that road and blame 
this guy or that woman or that person at work or, or whoever it is that's bringing this grief into your life, you can blame them. Or, like David, you can encourage yourself in God. Because this is what David does. He returns to the Lord for help. What he should have done long before, he grabs Abiathar, Ahimelech's son, and says, give me that ephod. I need to inquire of God. And he asks two questions. Should we chase after the Amalekites and will we overtake them? And God says, you must go. And actually what God is doing in answering David's prayer is giving him the needed balm for his soul. He's answering, yes, go. God tells him to pursue the Amalekites because he would overtake them and he would recover all. And this is what we get from prayers. My friends, this is the choice you must make. You are in a time of grief. And when you're suffering and those waves of, of depression and waves of sadness and the intense pain is just washing over you, that's when you go back to God. That's when you, you can say, well, he stole this and that brought this pain. Or she left or, or he hurt me or she lied or he disobeyed or she turned against me. You can, you can do those things. You can actually try to work through, maybe I should have known this in advance. He wasn't always trustworthy. Or we, we should have seen that she had some problems. Or he showed his hand before I should have known better. Or she did things. How couldn't I have seen it? You can go through that exercise. But my friends, you'll always come out the other end sad and in grief still. Or you can encourage yourself in God. You can question why God would allow you to suffer by this person's circumstances. Or you can go to God and say, Lord, I don't know why, for what specific purpose you brought me to this place in my life, but I'm here and this is where you brought me. Because you see, friends, just, just as I have to choose how to respond to grief, a, this is number two, a faith response. A faith response brings God's blessing. God loves when we come to him and say, Lord, I don't know where to go. That's when he answers. God, God isn't out there saying, do my will, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I hope you can find it. God's not doing that. I, I remember a Bible teacher I had telling me, I don't know what I'm going to do this summer. I'm just really praying God will show me. Well, maybe God will show you the future that far out. It was in the fall of the year. Maybe God will show you the future that far out. I'm not sure he does. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, to my steps. The answer is always just do right now. Follow God now. Have a faith response to God now. You see, the right response is to trust God's leading. So David, he and his 600 men, they're exhausted. They've just prayed, wept until they can't weep any longer, right? They're exhausted, but they get up. They get back on their, whatever they're riding. You kind of think of them as horses, but probably not horses. Camels, donkeys, whatever they got. You know, camel. they got their camel going like two miles an hour, chasing the other people on their camels. 
Actually, camels are probably much faster than that, but I always think of them as very slow. They get back on their animals. They're, they're now chasing after the Amalekites, and 200 of them have to stay behind because they're so tired. But see, David shows his faith. He says, okay, all right, God, I'll chase them. He rises up with his tuckered troops. They're exhausted to chase the Amalekites. And I love this chapter opens with David arriving in Ziklag after three days of marching. They're worn out physically so that he has to leave 200 of his troops behind. Kind of reminds me of Gideon, his band. Too tired to continue the march. He's going to face the army with a weakened military force. But he says, okay, God, you say go, I go. And the faith response is to follow God's leading that he's given you in his word, that he gives you through his wisdom and prayer, that he gives you through godly counsel. It's to follow that. I, I will never forget when, when I moved to Washington, D.C., right before I moved, and I knew the Lord wanted me to come here. I, I knew it. I, I had not quite settled on this area, but I was pretty certain I was coming to this area to plant a church. This is 21 years ago. All that took place, and I had prayed, and I had prayed, and I had prayed, and I had read God's word, and I was convinced that this is what God wanted me to do. But a youth pastor friend of mine at the church we were attending, he goes, Matt, I'm really glad you're going down there. I think God wants you to do that. I have no doubt. But you know, we were talking in our pastor staff meeting the other day. Uh, you know, it would have been really great if you'd have just said something to somebody. And I went, oh. I was a young man. I was 31 years old, maybe 32. I, I didn't really think through the, how you determine God's will carefully back then. I just prayed about it, believed God wanted me to do it, and there I'm going. Seemed right. But it would have been good if I would have said something. He goes, I, we would have been all for you, but it'd just been great if you'd let us know. And that was, I, I'll never forget that youth pastor saying that to me. It just kind of stuck right in my heart. And I think to myself, when God leads, and he leads through prayer, and he leads through his word, and he leads through godly counsel, and when you consult that, and all of that leads in a direction, then you say, okay, Lord, regardless, I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to do what you want me to do, regardless of the outcome, good or bad. We, we tend to think of everything in a very pragmatic way. That's just kind of the American approach to life, right? We look at everything that way, and we say, well, if it turns out good, then it was the right thing to do. If it turns out bad, it was the wrong thing to do. But that's not how God sees it at all. Did you obey me? Good. Did you disobey me? Bad. Did you follow my word? Good. Did you not follow my word? Did you follow your own thinking? Bad. Did you pray and seek my wisdom and follow that? Or did you just use your own ingenuity and your own education and your own mental acuity? Did you follow your own steps? Thy word is a lamp, not your brain, not your mind. And regardless of where that leads you, and sometimes it leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. But where it leads you is the place God wants you. Well, he gets he shows his faith by chasing after the enemy, even though he's tired. You know, he shows his faith even in the way he questions the Egyptian. He says to him, hey, tell me what's going on with the Amalekites. Who are you? And tell me, tell me what's going on. 
He discovers this stranger in the field. He finds the young Egyptian struggling to survive. He gives him some food. The guy, poor guy had been sick, and then on top of that, hadn't eaten or drunk anything for three days. So David gives him nourishment. He creates a relationship with this Egyptian. I, I'm sure this Egyptian's happy to be with David and his men more than happy to be with the Amalekites. And this Egyptian, he could be lying to David. He could be trying to take David into a trap. But David knows this is where God's leading me. And so because of his faith in God, he trusts the information as legitimate. There's no real reason the Egyptian has to tell David the truth. But David knows the outcome is already settled. And that's the peace of a man or a woman convinced that this is what God wants him or her to do. My friends, this is what you do, a faith response to grief by saying, I will trust God's leading in my life. And that kind of trust, that kind of faith always is pleasing to God. Trusting God ensures his blessing. The Egyptian brings him down. You kind of get the sense that they come around to bend and there in a field or the Amalekites all spread out. They got all their stuff out. They're counting their loot. If they had cameras, you know, if they had smartphones, they'd be taking pictures of it. Look what I got for Christmas and send it to all their loved ones. Look at my loot. This is incredible. It makes me actually think, by the way, you know, David had raided the Amalekites villages and taken some of their stuff. And here are the Amalekites raiding him and taking his stuff. I think maybe the Amalekites are getting some of their stuff back. At least in terms of being an Amalekite item. But the Amalekites are partying over their victories. And, and I'm wondering how David's wives are feeling at the moment. We, we get the whole picture from David's perspective. How do you think his wives and children are, are feeling? What's going through their minds? They're scared to death, I imagine. They're concerned about their children. These, I'm sure these moms are in mama bear mode. Trying to protect these boys, uh, these, these children of David. Ammon and Daniel, the two sons that David had at the time. And the Amalekites didn't even consider the possibility of David's arrival. They're in high spirits. They're drinking and dancing and looking at the loot as if they'd won it with no sense of thanks to God because these aren't believers at all. And David's army crushes them. Did you see in the story the reference to the camels? Did you see that part of the story? Who's on the camels? Do you see that? You remember, you go back there, it, it says 400 young men riding upon camels in verse 17. Why do you think it tells you the number who fled? Because it tells you the number who attacked, right? So, so David took 600 men, but 200 were too tired even to cross the river. So they stayed behind across the river at Bezor, and David attacks with 400 men. It says he crushes the Amalekites so that only 400 of them escaped. Now, generally, when you read something like that, usually it's like this. He killed this large group of people, and only this little small group made it. But the little small group was the same number as he had in attacking them in the first place. And this is the army of the Amalekites. David crushes them. This is a massive Victory. This is a large army because God is with him. Because God is walking beside him. This is the faith response to grief. When you know, even though I am in pain, even though my heart hurts, 
God is with me. God is walking beside me. He's the one leading me down this path. And that makes David's victory all the more amazing. It's really God's victory. Because God does this through him. David's faith results in a restoration of everything he'd lost. It doesn't mean there's no suffering on the part of his family. My friends, I'm not saying at the end everybody was hugging each other going, well, well that was an adventure. I don't, I don't think it's like a, when you blow a tire on the highway and you're, you're family, on the way to Disney World and you're, you're standing there beside the road and you have to figure out how to change a tire and get all the luggage out of the trunk. And it, no, that's an adventure, okay? This is real suffering. The families of these men suffered. The children of these men suffered. It, it didn't take away their suffering. And in fact, I think some of the seeds of David's family problems are even right now being sown. Remember, the Jezreelitess, his first wife, Ahinoam, actually his second wife, because Michael's his first, but he has no children by her. Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, her son is Amnon, who's going to later be killed by Absalom. I think the seeds are being sown right now because of David's sin, but David does make a full recovery of the material possession stolen from him. And the author, author of 1 Samuel wants this to be clear. It says he recovered all of it. That's right there in the Hebrew text. He got all of it back. God restored him to that place of what he had before. God didn't have to do that. God could have let him get his wives back. Maybe he lost all his stuff, but God didn't do that. God actually restored David back. It reminds me kind of the end of the story of Job, right? Job did lose his family. He lost his health, but he gets his health back at the end of the story of Job. And, and with his wife, they have more children. And those children turn out, the girls turn out to be the beautiful women of the land. He gets his stuff back multiple times over. And God restores Job. And I'm not saying if you're suffering and you're trusting God, he's just going to restore everything back to the way it was. I, I want you to know that may not happen, but God's blessings will be upon you. There are some sins that bring scars that can never fully heal in this life. And it may not be a restoration like you want it to be. But listen, if you trust the Lord, you can never outgive Him. And so, my friends, I just say when you're grieving, how do you respond? In faith or in frustration? Do you take it to the Lord in prayer? Do you? Do you pray? Do you, do you read his word and find the healing salve here in his word? Do you seek his guidance knowing he promises? If you ask for wisdom, he'll give it to you. Do you obey his leading? Do you trust him even though he allowed you to grieve? When Judson left New England for Burma, he had two prayer requests. This is really quite amazing. It, 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 I'm so thankful for the biographies of Judson that have been written because, uh, in fact, his third wife, uh, he loses two to death. His third wife writes a biography of him. Much of what we have comes from her, his third wife, and, and children he has later. 
and stories about him written by biographers and scholars about Judson. It, it, it's wonderful that we have this. It opens a window into his life. Judson had two prayer requests when he left for Burma. He prayed, Lord, let me translate the Bible into Burmese so they can have a copy of your word. And let me see a hundred Burmese people come to Christ. When Judson was buried in the Boston area, when he left Bur Burma for the last time, he had translated the Bible into Burmese. I can't even go into the story. You need to read the book, To the Golden Shore, of, of how God preserved his translation. At one point, it was in a pillowcase and being swapped out like a spy as they were trying to search through the home to find his papers. At another point, a servant rescued and buried the translation in the floor of the hut so that no one could find it. I mean, it's just amazing to read how God preserved that translation. He, he was able to translate it into Burmese. But what's really amazing is God didn't bring just 100 people to faith. When he left, there were some 7,000 Burmese that had trusted Christ and tens of thousands of the Karen people who he specifically worked with in Burma. God, God didn't answer his prayer a little bit. He just poured out blessing upon blessing on this man. And even though he suffered in ways that I can't even imagine, God answered his prayer and gave him the desire of his heart. My friends, when you grieve, how will you respond? In faith, trusting him or not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is what we need. Your word to speak to us. I, I often think, Lord, when people are suffering, there's nothing to say. There's nothing that can be said. But you're not like us because you can speak to the soul. Help us to listen to you when you speak. For those in here who are going through grief right now, help them to make the right choice of choosing to trust in you. Of choosing to follow your leading. Of choosing to leave it in your hands. And even if the outcome is not what they hope, to know that you will answer prayer and bring yourself glory. And it will be far beyond what we can imagine or think. So I ask your God that you would do that. For the rest of us, Lord, who are not suffering right now, grief is always around the corner. Help us to remember that when facing it, the first choice is to pray. The first decision is to consult you and then to trust you. Help us to seal that decision today in our hearts. Before I finish praying, you're here this morning, you're grieving. Maybe that's where you're at. And you need to make and confirm that choice to trust in God right now. I'd love to pray for you. 
If God's Spirit is speaking to your heart like that, would you say, Pastor, pray for me? Just raise your hand. Brother, I'll pray for you. I sure will. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. Yes, ma'am. I see your hand. I will pray for you. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. I'm grieving. Now, maybe you're here and you say, you know, I hadn't really thought about this too much. Because right now, things are going pretty good in my life. Things are well. It's well with my soul. Will you just commit in your heart that when the griefs come, and they're going to come, that you will respond in faith and not in your frustration? Maybe God's Spirit indicated to you that that's something you need to decide. Would you let me pray for you? Anybody like that? Yep, Pastor, Spirit was speaking to me. Yes, I'll pray for you. Sure. Who else? Yes, ma'am, I'll pray for you. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Lord, now you see the hands that have risen today. You know our hearts where they're at. I pray, dear God, please bring the, the right healing balm to salve the, the pain. And may it be faith that leads us out of this dark place. We thank you, God, for your word again. Change us through it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand to our feet. The pianist will play. You go to God as, you, as, you, as she's playing. There are people in here who are grieving. Pray for them right now. Even if you don't know their names, you pray as she plays.